This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to spend some time each Friday on First Jobs. And we call it First Jobs Friday because everybody had to have one. Well, let's hope everyone would have a first job, which would lead to a second and a third job. And this is our way of talking about many things, including personal responsibility and even upward mobility. And we talk to famous people about their first job. Everybody we talk to, we ask them what was their first job. And by the way, this came about because Alex once brings me a clip of, of all people, Ashton Kutcher at the Nickelodeon Teen Choice Awards. And Ashton was talking about his first job and actually then his second and his third and of all places at, again, the Nickelodeon Teen Choice Awards. Let's take a listen to that clip that inspired this segment. When I was 13, I had my first job with my dad carrying shingles up to the roof. And then I got a job washing dishes at a restaurant. And then I got a job in a grocery store deli. And then I got a job in a factory sweeping Cheerio dust off the ground. And I've never had a job in my life that I was better than. I was always just lucky to have a job. And every job I had was a stepping stone to my next job. And I never quit my job until I had my next job. And so opportunities look a lot like work. And by the way, if you have a first job story, 844-627-8255 is our line, and we leave it open for you to tell a story. And there's about five, don't go over five minutes, but if you can get it in there, we won't cut you off. And tell us about your first job and what it meant to you and what it did for you or what it didn't do. Some people's first job inspires them to never want to do that job again. Others, it's a stepping stone like we learned from Ed Renzi, whose first job was a minimum wage worker at McDonald's. He ended up being the CEO. Not bad. And by the way, stories we need to tell more often in this country. Today's story is from Ken Griffin, a Chicagoan who runs one of the most successful hedge funds in the world called Citadel. Forbes estimates Griffin's net worth at a whopping $7 billion. But that's not where he started. As he tells Michael Milken and the crowd at the Milken Institute Global Conference. Raise your hand if you work for minimum wage. I did when I was younger. Most of the hands in this room go up. And I can tell you what, most of us probably hated a lot of aspects of those jobs. We wish we were paid more. And we would never have changed that moment in our life in the scheme of things. I worked at the Franklin Mint Gallery. I convinced people to buy the Star Trek chests that they really didn't need. (laughs) That's great. And then Ken Griffin got to college and discovered just how important first jobs like his really are. In college, I actually did a a bit of research on income mobility in America. The single most important factor to escaping poverty is securing your first job. It doesn't matter if it's flipping hamburgers at McDonald's or working at the Franklin Mint Gallery. Your first job in America is the start of the ladder to the top. And when we start to reduce the ability for companies to form, for companies to hire people, for companies to create jobs, we're actually taking away what we also value, which is the ability for everyone to get ahead. And that's what we like to do here in Our American Stories. We like to explain how things happen, how a business starts, how it grows, how it succeeds, and how it employs more people. And ultimately, if it fires on all cylinders how much it can actually can contribute to a tax base, too. 
Finally, here's Griffin, who powerfully makes the case that it's small businesses, not big businesses like his, who have traditionally had the most important role of all in providing these kinds of first jobs. One of the real important parts of where I'm going with this is that, and this is Michael Bloomberg. I, I, owe, I owe Mayor Bloomberg this really important, powerful insight. This is, I need to give him credit. Small businesses is where the person who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, Stanford, University of Illinois, et cetera, et cetera, it's where they get their first break. When a small company has to hire somebody, they put up the help wanted sign. They put the ad in the paper. They post on the internet. And they're just happy to have somebody who's quasi-qualified walk in the door and say, I will work here. And that person, it may be their first job. And they're happy to have the first job, and the employer is happy to have their first employee. Small companies are the great job creation engine of America. Because once you've held that job for a couple of years, many, many more doors open up. IBM doesn't take risk in hiring people. Citadel doesn't take risk in hiring people. Small companies in America take risks in hiring people. And this is so true, and that's why we love talking particularly about small businesses. And we do that in our American Dreamers story routinely, uh, how people took small businesses and turned them into big ones. And what's holding so many people back right now? You know, in the last few years, you've had a record number of of small businesses not forming uh, and more dying. And never before in recorded data, as folks have kept track of these things for more than a half century, have there been more small business failures and deaths than births? This is a tragedy, again, for anybody trying to get that first job, as Ken Griffith said, that doesn't have the qualifications. And again, you were listening to Ken Griffin, and you may know him if you know anything about the financial world and about investing. He's one of America's titans in the industry. Again, a net worth of $7 billion. And again, we learned from Ed Renzi. He had ambitions, and he had a child, and was married. And all of a sudden, those ambitions were put on hold. He needed to work 100 hours a week at the minimum wage, which was then 85 cents an hour. And he worked 100 hours a week. And pretty soon he was an assistant manager and then a manager. And he was CEO. And nobody tells that story anywhere. And that's why we tell it here on Our American Stories. Not left versus right. Just reality. This is real life. And we love to tell these stories. And again, go to 844-627-8255. Your first job. We don't just want rich and famous. Everybody's had a first one. We all did here. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we love to talk about history and we also love to talk about music 
Which brings us to our favorite weekly segment, our This Week in Music History. This Week in Music History, 1957, although it was banned by some radio stations for its suggestive lyrics, the Everly Brothers had their first number one on the U.S. singles chart with Wake Up Little Susie, also a number two hit in the U.K. And in 1988, on their 12th single release, U2 scored their first UK number one with Desire. The track was also a US number three hit taken from their album Rattle and Hum. Two says the Stooges' song 1969 was the primary influence on Desire. Take a listen. Even George Thorogood played this exact same rhythm in Who Do You Love? Each one of these rhythms is an adaptation of what's called the Bo Diddley beat, which goes like this. Now, the Bo Diddley beat is one of the most common musical patterns found in Afro-Cuban music and can be traced as far back as sub-Saharan African traditions. And in 1941, Paul Simon is born in Newark, New Jersey. His musical career has spanned seven decades with his fame and commercial success, beginning as half of the duo Simon and Garfunkel, which was formed in 1964 with Art Garfunkel. In 1986, he released Graceland, an album inspired by South African township music, which sold over 14 million copies worldwide on his release and remains his most popular solo work. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. Following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. My traveling companion is nine years old. He's the child of my first wife. In 1988, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon finally left Billboard's Hot 200 album chart after a record-breaking 741 weeks. One of the most popular tracks is about how time can slip by, but many people don't realize it until it's too late. In 1998, Dark Side of the Moon was certified 15 times platinum, meaning it had sold more than 15 million copies. Here's Roger Waters on writing the song Time. Shorter of breath 
I suddenly realised then that year that uh, life was already happening. I think it's because my mother was so obsessed with education and the idea that childhood and adolescence and, well, everything was about preparing for a life that was going to start later. Um, and I suddenly realised that life wasn't going to start later, that it had, you know, it starts at dot and it happens all the time and that at any point you can grasp the reins and start guiding your own destiny. And that was a big revelation to me. And in 1961, Ray Charles started the two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Hit the Road, Jack. It reached number six on the U.K. charts and won a Grammy Award for Best Rhythm and Blues Recording. Here's the one and only Tom Petty, who would frequently incorporate this song seamlessly into his live version of Breakdown. In 1981, this week in music history during a North America tour, the Rolling Stones played the first of two nights at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. Now, the support act that night was Prince, who dressed in his controversial bikini briefs and trench coat. He was run off stage after 15 minutes due to the crowd booing and throwing beer cans at him. The Rolling Stones had good intentions bringing Prince to the show, but it just wasn't a good fit for that crowd, and when he opened his trench coat <laughs> to reveal bikini briefs, it got ugly. Prince would never perform as an opening act for anyone, ever, again. But exactly one year earlier, Prince had released his third album, Dirty Mind, the biggest hit from that set being Uptown, which peaked at number three on the R&B. Born this week in history, 1985, pop singer and record producer Bruno Mars. To date, he has sold over 130 million records worldwide, making him one of the best-selling artists of all time. This is that ice-cold Michelle fight for that white gold. This one for them hood girls, them good girls. Bruno Mars landed several number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100 since his career launched in 2010, attaining his first five faster than any male artist since Elvis Presley. Also born this week in music history, 1940, John Lennon, singer-songwriter, guitarist with the Beatles, sold over 20 million singles worldwide between 1962 and 1970. He scored more UK and US number one albums than any other group. In 1967, Sgt. Pepper's is the UK's biggest selling album ever. He was later shot dead in New York by Mark David Chapman on December 8th of 1980. 
and in 1967, The Doors appeared at Danbury High School in Danbury, Connecticut. Before the group came on stage, an announcer told the audience not to leave their seats during the performance or they would be escorted out of the venue. Jeez. And this week in music history, Bob Dylan was awarded with the 2016 Nobel Prize for Literature, becoming the first songwriter to win the prestigious award. The 75-year-old rock legend received the prize for having created new poetic expressions with the great American song tradition. Bob Dylan's journey into the great American songbook continues with Stardust, the oft-covered Hoagy Carmichael classic that Dylan recorded for his latest album, Triplicate. And that's This Week in Music History. This is Our American Stories. When I received the Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. Sometimes I wonder why I spend my lonely nights dreaming of a song. The melody haunts my reverie and I'm once again And each kiss an inspiration Ah, but that was long ago And now my consolation Is in the stardust of a song Beside the garden wall When stars were bright You were in my arms The nightingale told his family a paradise where roses blue Though I dream in vain In my heart it'll always remain My stardust melody The memory of love's refrain This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we talk about all kinds of things on this show, good things, positive things mostly, but every once in a while we have to talk about hard things, and suicide, it may just be the hardest. 44,000 plus Americans take their life every year, and for every successful attempt, there are 25 people who actually try. Men, by the way, are three and a half times more likely than women to take their own lives. And men account for seven out of ten suicides. It's also the third leading cause of death for 10 to 14-year-olds. And we know this personally here on the show. My own niece, Tamara, took her life two and a half years ago. None of us saw it coming. When we got the call, we couldn't believe it. And you've never heard crying like it. I've never cried like it. And if I talk about it, I practically tear up thinking about it. 
Well, we ask our audience for stories too. And here is Jackie James's story. She's sharing her son Peyton's story. My son Peyton James was an amazing boy. He had beautiful red hair, piercing hazel eyes that changed from green to blue, and a quirky sense of humor. He loved animals, road trips, Minecraft, Legos, and chocolate ice cream. He was my angel face, and now he is my angel in heaven. He was born in 2001, nine weeks early, and he weighed just under two and a half pounds. He spent 35 days in the NICU before he was able to come home. While in the hospital, he spent three weeks on pure oxygen and was fed through a tube. What wasn't known then was that the oxygen and the liquid nutrition was causing a discoloration in the enamel of his permanent teeth, a problem we wouldn't see for several years. In second grade, the teasing began. Why don't you brush your teeth? Why are your teeth so nasty? Although his teeth were healthy, they were this mottled yellow color, kind of like the color of a popcorn kernel. He was also picked on because of his red hair, his glasses, and the fact that he was smaller than most of the other boys. He was seen as weak and became a target. As Peyton got older, he often wondered why people were so mean to him. He would ask me, Mom, why can't people just be nice? Or, Mom, what did I do to them? I never really knew how to answer those questions, so I tried to encourage him to be the nice one. I also told him all the things a parent tells a child, that he was special, that he was smart, that he was loved. But as kids grow older, the words of a parent begin to pale in comparison to the words of their peers. In November of 2013, Peyton had his first suicidal event. For years, he had been tormented by several boys at his school. Peyton started to say that his father and I would be better off without him and that he didn't want to be here anymore. At first, we thought he was just overreacting, but when the comments didn't stop, I knew he was in trouble, so I took him to the local emergency room. Sadly, ERs don't really deal with mental health issues, and we were referred to a therapist. He soon began weekly therapy and seemed to be feeling better, but this was short-lived. In the summer of 2014, I got a new teaching job in a better school district, and this meant Peyton would have to change schools. I helped him to see that this was a new beginning and that the bullies from his previous school would be a thing of the past. He was nervous but excited. As he started eighth grade at his new school, he met one boy with whom he had many interests, and they became friends. However, the teasing and the bullying continued at this school, too. Peyton was an easy target because he didn't like what other kids liked. He didn't play sports. He loved Doctor Who, YouTube, and anime, and would rather read a book than play outside. He was soon being called a loser or a geek. He was devastated. The difference was that he had stopped telling me about the bullying. A month into his new school year, Peyton told me about what was going on. He had reported an incident to the principal the day before, and the principal just told him to avoid the other boy. I asked Peyton why he hadn't told me this was going on, and he said, Mom, you can't fix this. I was devastated. After all, it was my job to fix it. As we talked on the way home, I tried to help him see that maybe it wasn't as bad as he had thought. And when we got home, Peyton went to his room, typical of a teenage boy. I thought he just needed some time alone. After about 20 minutes, I went to check on him, and that's when I found him. Peyton had hung himself from the ceiling fan in his bedroom. There was no warning, and there was no note. After a frantic call to 911 and 25 minutes of CPR by paramedics, Peyton was transported to the local hospital and then taken by helicopter to Dell Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas. The doctors did everything they could to stabilize him and to allow him to heal. 
but the injury to his brain was just too severe. On October 13, 2014, at 12.02 in the morning, my beautiful son Peyton was pronounced brain dead. At 8.30 that night, he gave his last and most profound gift by donating his organs, corneas, and skin. He saved the lives of six people, enhanced the lives of countless others. After his death, I was numb. I don't really remember a lot of the next few weeks, but I do remember a conversation I had with the mother of one of Peyton's close friends, a girl named Phoebe. She told me that Phoebe had been crying at school, and the boy who had tormented Peyton for all those years saw her crying and knew why. He came over to her and he said, I'm not surprised that boy was a freak. This was like a punch in the gut. I just couldn't understand why one person would choose to be so incredibly mean to another person. No good could come from that statement, so why would he say it? It was then that I realized that we have done our children a disservice. We've taught them about bullies and bullying behavior. We've given them detailed ideas of what bullies do and told them not to be one. What we haven't done, though, is teach them how to be nice to one another. We just assume they know. We hope that when we tell them to be nice that they know how, but often they don't. I knew I had to do something, and that's when Kindness Matters was born. I started it as a Facebook page with the intent of sharing stories of kindness and reminders to be kind to one another, even when it wasn't easy. We also started a weekly kindness challenge that gave people a kindness task to perform each week. At first, there were only a few hundred followers. Soon after, I was asked to speak at my school's No Place for Hate rally, and I shared Peyton's story. Then I started speaking at other schools, sharing Peyton's story, and using participation activities to show kids the real power of their words and the power of kindness. To date, we have given presentations in 41 schools across Texas, and our Facebook family has grown to over 29,000. We also have Kindness Matters t-shirts and wristbands, which we have sent to all 50 states and nine countries, using the proceeds to start a scholarship. Peyton wanted to be a veterinarian when he grew up, so we started a scholarship in his name at the Texas A&M University School of Veterinarian Medicine. We hope to fulfill the $25,000 endowment of the scholarship fund so that the Peyton A. James Memorial Scholarship will be a permanent addition to the Texas A&M Foundation. It is my deepest hope that we can change the culture of our society and leave all the negativity and name-calling behind. Creating a culture of kindness has to start with one person, so why not with me or you? For more information about Kindness Matters or to follow us on social media, please head over to www.kindness-matters.org. And thank you for that, Jackie, and thank you for honoring your son. That vet scholarship that you're saving up for, all that touring around Texas and the schools. Mom, you can't fix this. I just keep hearing that in my head. Imagine having a kid tell you that. Mom, you can't fix this. And by the way, this is what we do when tragedy strikes. We try and do something positive and turn something just terribly ugly and tragic into something beautiful. That his body was donated, his body saved the lives of six people. I think that's got to mean a lot to Jackie and her family. This is something she'll live with the rest of her life. The grief will never go. But my goodness, what Americans do, what we all do, 
under these circumstances is remarkable. Again, call us, email us, ouramericannetwork.org. Your stories, we'll bring them on the air. We get out of the way. Jackie James' story, her son Peyton's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time to hear the story of one of the more unusual figures in American history. While you seldom hear his name nowadays, he was a big deal during the late 60s and early 70s. Here's Jesse with the story of Tiny Tim. saw Tiny Tim on television while growing up in the 80s. Captured my attention right away. What the heck was I watching? A grown man playing the ukulele singing like a cartoon character with a terrifying physical appearance and strange demeanor. Think Marilyn Manson meets Jackie Mason. I'm not trying to be mean, just descriptive. I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Now, hearing this music today, someone who isn't familiar with Tiny Tim might think that this was all just one big joke. But Tiny Tim wasn't a joke. Most people thought of him as a novelty comedy act. But the thing is, Tiny Tim wasn't really an act. Now, here's the speaking voice of Tiny Tim. You're going to notice a bit of a difference from his singing voice. Melody, in my opinion, is 99% of all songs. Words are just 1%. A great melody is what really counts, whether it's today or 50 years ago, any of the Beatles songs. You know, the Beatles had one thing in common with Irving Berlin and all the other writers like the Gershwins. They knew how they had a great knack of, of what hit songs sounded like. You take mostly any of their songs, from Norwegian Wood to uh, I Saw Her Standing There to uh, Love Me Do, every one of these songs can be remembered. They just had a knack of writing hit songs. In April of 1932, he was born Herbert Buckingham Carey in Manhattan. His mother, a Polish Jew. His father, a Lebanese Catholic. Tiny Tim displayed musical talent at a very young age. At five years old, his father gave him a vintage wind-up gramophone and a 78 RPM record of Beautiful Ohio by Henry Burke. Long, long ago, someone I know Tiny Tim would sit for hours listening to this record. At the age of six, he began teaching himself to play guitar. By his preteen years, he developed a passion for records, specifically those from the 1900s through the 1930s. 
He began spending most of his free time at the New York Public Library reading about the history of the phonograph industry and its first recording artists. He would research sheet music, often making copies to take home to learn. A hobby he continued for his entire life. The New York Public Library in Lincoln Center, I don't know if any one of your listeners know this, it's available, they have over 7 million songs. And with the original sheet music co- uh, you know, cover going back to the 1800s in large bound volumes. Mm-hmm. Some of them are microfilm now, and they can be, they can be Xerox only with the publisher's permission but, uh, after 1905. Mm-hmm. But before 1905, you can Xerox them. Uh, and I found, just looking through the history of this country as well as the hit songs at that time, which is simply amazing. Now here's a song. Thanks, I picked. Thanks, Mr. Bailey. I, tell you, I picked a song up last year in the library. The sheet music was faded and torn, and I was just fortunate to be able to Xerox this mm-hmm. because it was 1905, and they don't let you do anything after that year mm-hmm. unless you get the publisher's permission. But here's a song that. Um, was written at the time the subways were first being built in Chicago and in New York, the first underground subways. I hope it wasn't. Down in the subways, oh, what a place. Under the Isle of Manhattan, speeding through space, just place for swooning all the season round way down way down in the subway we underneath the ground at 11 years old tiny tim began learning how to play the violin and the mandolin soon moving on to what would be considered his signature instrument the ukulele After dropping out of high school, he worked a series of menial jobs before he discovered his ability to sing in an upper register. There's something of a new revelation. I never knew that I had a higher top register. And one day I heard Rudy Valley sing, and uh, I said, gee, look how high he hits those notes. I consider this a gift of the Lord, uh, an undisclosed gift. By the early 1950s, he had landed a job as a messenger at the New York office of MGM Studios, where he became ever more fascinated with the entertainment industry. Tiny Tim started by performing at dance club amateur nights under different names such as Texarkana Tex, Judas K. Foxglove, Vernon Castle, and Emmett Swink. Oh, animal crackers in my soup. Monkeys and rabbits, loop the loop. Gosh, oh gee, but I have fun swallowing. Oh, when they're inside me where it's dark, I walk around like Noah's Ark. I stuff my tummy like a but animal crackers in my soup. Now to stand out from the crowd of performers, Tiny Tim would wear crazy outfits. And after seeing an old poster of a long-haired Rudolph Valentino, Tiny Tim grew his own hair out to shoulder length and wore pasty white facial makeup. His mother didn't understand his change in appearance and was intending to take her son, now in his 20s, to see a psychiatrist at Bellevue Hospital until his father stepped in. You see, back in the day, if your mom took you to Bellevue, you were pretty much certified crazy. She left me with the herpes. Now why did she do that? Last night I sat upon a chair and gave it to the cat. The cat gave it to Rover and to the mousey too. The mousey gave it to the bird, I don't know what to do. 
Thank God his dad intervened. By 1968, his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim, was released. It contained an orchestrated version of Tiptoe Through the Tulips, which became a hit after being released as a single. Now, for most of the album, Tiny Tim sings in his unusual falsetto style. However, on a number of songs like this hilarious rendition of Sonny and Cher's I Got You, Babe, he sings both baritone and falsetto, alternating between the two. Because you've all been so sweet, another duet for you. They say we're young and we don't know Won't find out until we grow Well, I don't know, I guess it's true Cause you got me and baby, I got you Funny thing is, he almost sounds just like Cher I got you, babe I got you, babe just a year later, in 1969, Tiny Tim was now a household name on three continents when he appeared with Bing Crosby on live television from the Hollywood Palace. We'll have a little game here. I'll sing a bit of a song, and you tell me uh, what picture it was from, and then you have to sing another song from the same picture. Now, sit down. This will take a little thought. You ready? Gee, thanks, Mr. Bing. That'd be great. I'll sing a song. You tell me what picture, and then you sing a song of the same Down the old ox road, though you'll never know where it is by looking at maps. Oh, gee, that's easy. What's that? That's, the year was 1933. True. The picture was College Humor. Right. And from that picture, you also sang, Learn to croon. You'll eliminate each rival soon. If you're heading for a sunny honeymoon, learn to croon. Well, you could throw a Labrador through that, that vibrato of yours. Tiny Tim was now just about as famous as you can get. That same year, he married his third wife, Vicky, on the set of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in front of 40 million viewers. Here's stage magician and comedian Penn Jillette on why Tiny Tim matters to him. Tiny Tim matters to me because he is the antithesis of all that is cynical in the uh, American culture. There was this time... You know, this time in the late 60s when all of America decided to embrace, whether with a wink or whether without a wink, someone who was truly different, who was truly eccentric. And all the people that have reason to be cynical, um, Lenny Bruce, Frank Sinatra, Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Johnny Carson, Bing Crosby, Howard Stern, um, they all melted in front of Tiny Tim. Bob Dylan uh, seemed to think he was the only real person that uh, Bob Dylan ever met. Bob Dylan met a lot of people. On September 28, 1996, Tiny Tim suffered a heart attack just as he began singing at a ukulele festival in Montauk, Massachusetts. He was hospitalized for three weeks before being discharged and told never to play again on stage. Tiny Tim ignored the advice. On November 30th of 1996, he was playing at a gala benefit hosted by the Women's Club of Minneapolis. While performing his last number of the evening, he suffered another heart attack on stage in the middle of a rendition of his hit, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. When he collapsed and never regained consciousness, Tiny Tim was pronounced dead nearly an hour later. And that is the story of Tiny Tim. Never hit your grandma with a shovel. It makes a bad impression on her mind. One of a kind. 
unabashedly himself. Strange. American. This is Our American Story. All I want is $50 million. And great job on that, Jesse. And if you can, go to YouTube, Google Tiny Tim and Johnny Carson, and you'll understand what Penn Jillette was saying. Tiny Tim's story here on Our American Stories. And we're living in the mansion with a gold. If I only owned the Pennsylvania Railroad. And if Tuesday well would only be my wife. I'm walking. States that I did Walking With you in my head I feel I'm so tired My brain is so wired stories and you're listening to Bob Dylan his Grammy Award performance for Time Out of Mind which put him back on the map I don't know the 10th time and no singer songwriter has ever come before or after like Bob Dylan like him or not he won the Nobel Prize and he gave a speech that was so remarkable we're going to play it for you because it was essentially a defense of the western canon that is Real literature. The range and power of Dylan's art will stun you from his early folk days to his revolutionary recordings like Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks, from his remarkable Christian period, Ring Them Bells, Every Grain of Sand, Gotta Serve Somebody, their gospel masterpieces, right through to his stark blues period, which you were just listening to, and the writing on records like Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. Listen to the song It's Not Dark Yet, and try not to hear literature and the call of literature's great themes. And we're going to play that bumping out of this segment. For those of us who call ourselves Dylan fans, when the Nobel Prize was announced, we wondered what would come next. Would Dylan fulfill the final requirement of accepting the award and give the required lecture to the Nobel Foundation? It would be so unlike him, we thought. Or would he simply not show up? That also would be unlike him. He always shows up. Dylan did what only Dylan would do. 
he released a recorded speech to the Nobel Foundation. It was, among other things, part autobiography, part music history, and in the end, a radical defense of classic literature. From the Odyssey to Moby Dick. Dylan began the talk by puzzling over the question of whether or not his music is actually literature. He wasn't at all certain. When I received the Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. I wanted to reflect on it and see where the connection was. I'm going to try to articulate that to you, and most likely it will go in a roundabout way. But I hope what I say will be worthwhile and purposeful. He then plunged knee-deep into the roots of his art and the artists that triggered his life's journey. If I was to go back to the dawning of it all, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. Buddy died when I was about 18 and he was 22. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother. I even thought I resembled him. Buddy played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on, country western, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses. And he sang great. He sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype. Everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only but once, and that was a few days before he was gone. I had to travel a hundred miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was powerful and electrifying, and had a commanding presence. I was only six feet away. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood his neat suit, everything about him. He looked older than 22. Something about him seemed permanent, and he filled me with conviction. Then out of the blue, the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me right straight dead in the eye, and he transmitted something, something I didn't know what, and it gave me the chills. Dylan continued to walk us through his musical birth and growth. I think it was a day or two after that that his plane went down. And somebody, somebody I'd never seen before, handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cotton Fields on it. And that record changed my life right then and there, transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off, like I'd been walking in darkness, and all of a sudden the darkness was illuminated. It was like somebody laid hands on me. I must have played that record a hundred times. And we're going to go out now with one of his compositions from one of his blues records, It's Not Dark Yet. He recorded this with Daniel Lenoir, the man who I think put you two on the map. When the Joshua Tree was recorded, it was Daniel Lenoir's influence that turned you two from a sort of a punk New Age band to an international world-class band. This is Our American Stories, Bob Dylan's story, the Nobel Prize, his speech after these messages. Shadows are falling and I've been here all day It's too hot to sleep And time is running away Feel like my soul has Turned into steel 
Still got the scars at the sun There's not even room enough to be anywhere It's not dark yet But it's getting there And my sense of humanity has gone down the drain. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, you're gonna have to serve somebody, well, you will have to serve somebody, yes, well, it might be the devil, it might be the Lord, you, you'll have to serve somebody. This is Our American Stories, and you can judge a man's writing, particularly songwriting, by the number of covers that his writing spawns. And my goodness, no one had more covers than Bob Dylan as a writer, but the Beatles, nobody. Only the Beatles had more, again, as writers. And we're talking about Bob Dylan, and we're talking about his Nobel speech, which was just remarkable, indeed so good, that we want to share it with you. And we now dig into the time that Dylan spent talking about his life as a journeyman, and a craftsman, and the early tug of American roots music from blues to bluegrass. I hadn't left home yet, but I couldn't wait to. I wanted to learn this music and meet the people who played it. Eventually I did leave, and I did learn to play those songs. They were different than the radio songs that I'd been listening to all along. They were more vibrant and truthful to life. With radio songs, a performer might get a hit with a roll of the dice or a fall of the cards. But that didn't matter in the folk world. Everything was a hit. All you had to do was be well-versed and be able to play the melody. Some of these songs were easy, some not. I had a natural feeling for the ancient ballads and country blues. But everything else I had to learn from scratch. And I was playing for small crowds, sometimes no more than four or five people in a room or on a street corner. You had to have a wide repertoire, and you had to know what to play and when. Some songs were intimate, some you had to shout to be heard. By listening to all the early folk artists and singing the songs yourself, you pick up the vernacular, you internalize it, you sing it in the ragtime blues, work songs, Georgia Sea Shanties, the Appalachian ballads and cowboy songs. You hear all the finer points and you learn the details. You know what it's all about, taking a pistol out, putting it back in your pocket whipping your way through traffic, talking in the dark. You know that Steiger Lee was a bad man and that Frankie was a good girl. You know that Washington is a bourgeois town and you heard the deep-pitched voice of John the Revelator and you saw the Titanic sink in a boggy creek and your pals with the wild Irish rover and the wild colonial boy. You heard the muffled drums and the fifes that played lully. You've seen the lusty Lord Donald stick a knife in his wife and a lot of your comrades have been wrapped in white linen. 
I had all the vernacular down. I knew the rhetoric. None of it went over my head. The devices, the techniques, the secrets, the mysteries. And I knew all the deserted roads that I traveled on too. I could make it all connect and move with the current of the day. When I started writing my own songs, the folk lingo was the only vocabulary that I knew. And I used it. This tutorial on mastery of craft wasn't finished. Indeed, it had only just begun. Dylan then proceeded to tell us the larger canvas from which he drew inspiration, literature, and the very best novels that were once a fundamental part of every American school kid's life. Rarely, if ever, has the Western canon been more eloquently defended. But I had something else as well. I had principles and sensibilities and an informed view of the world. And I had had that for a while. Learned it all in grammar school. Don Quixote, Ivanhoe, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Tales of Two Cities, all the rest. Typical grammar school reading. They gave you a way of looking at life, an understanding of human nature, and a standard to measure things by. I took all that with me when I started composing lyrics. And the themes from those books work their way into many of my songs, either knowingly or unintentionally. I wanted to write songs unlike anything anybody ever heard. And these themes were fundamental. One of the works of literature that Dylan talked about in this great speech is the epic poem by Homer, the Odyssey, of all things. But it was relevant to Dylan and alive to Dylan, and he thinks it's still alive today, that story and the eternal themes. Take a listen. The Odyssey is a great book whose themes have worked its way into the ballads of a lot of songwriters. Homeward Bound, Green Green Grass of Home, Home on the Range, and my songs as well. The Odyssey is a strange, adventurous tale of a grown man trying to get home after fighting in a war. He's on that long journey home, and it's filled with traps and pitfalls. He's cursed to wander. He's always getting carried out to sea, always having close calls. Huge chunks of boulders rock his boat. He angers people he shouldn't. There's troublemakers in his crew. Treachery. His men are turned into pigs, and then they're turned back into younger, more handsome men. He's always trying to rescue somebody. He's a traveling man, but he's making a lot of stops. He's stranded on a desert island. He finds deserted caves, and he hides in them. He meets giants that say, I'll eat you last and he escapes from giants. He's trying to get back home, but he's tossed and turned by the winds. Restless winds, chilly winds, unfriendly winds. He travels far, and then he gets blown back. He's always being warned of things to come, touching things he's told not to. There's two roads to take, and they're both bad, both hazardous. On one you could drown, and on the other you could starve. He goes into the narrow straits with foaming whirlpools that swallow him, meets six-headed monsters with sharp fangs, thunderbolts strike at him, overhanging branches that he makes a leap to reach for to save himself from a raging river. Goddesses and gods protect him, but some others want to kill him. He changes identities. He's exhausted. He falls asleep and he's woken up by the sound of laughter. He tells his story to strangers. He's been gone 20 years. He was carried off somewhere and left there. 
Drugs have been dropped into his wine. It's been a hard road to travel. In a lot of ways, some of these same things have happened to you. You too have had drugs dropped into your wine. You too have shared a bed with the wrong woman. You too have been spellbound by magical voices, sweet voices with strange melodies. You too have come so far and have been so far blown back. And you've had close calls as well. You have angered people you should not have. And you too have rambled this country all around. And you've also felt that ill wind, the wind that blows you no good. And that's still not all of it. When he gets back home, things aren't any better. Scoundrels have moved in and are taking advantage of his wife's hospitality. And there's too many of them. And though he's greater than them all, and the best at everything, best carpenter, best hunter, best expert on animals, best seaman, his courage won't save him, but his trickery will. All these stragglers will have to pay for desecrating his palace. He'll disguise himself as a filthy beggar, and a lowly servant kicks him down the steps with arrogance and stupidity. The servant's arrogance revolts him, but he controls his anger. He's one against a hundred, but they'll all fall, even the strongest. He was nobody, and when it's all said and done, when he's home at last, he sits with his wife and he tells her the stories. And my goodness, you want this guy teaching your literature class, don't you? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Bob Dylan, his explication, his explanation of Moby Dick, maybe the greatest of all time, a story we all know, but not really, not after we listen to Bob Dylan talk about it. We're going to go out with more covers, and this one, one of the best of all. Dylan had often said that after he heard Jimi Hendrix sing all along the Watchtower, he had to sing it different. There must be some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there to drink my wine Plow man dig my earth None will level on the mine Nobody of it is worth Side. 
is Our American Stories. You're listening to Axl Rose. Guns N' Roses, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, everybody covered Dylan, the most covered songwriter of all time besides the Beatles, but there were three songwriters in the Beatles. Dylan did it by himself. And let's return to that great Nobel speech, and we get up next to Moby Dick, and we get up close as Dylan talks about the impact of literature on his life and this book. Moby Dick is a fascinating book. A book that's filled with scenes of high drama and dramatic dialogue. The book makes demands on you. The plot is straightforward. The mysterious Captain Ahab, captain of a ship called the Pequod, an egomaniac with a peg leg, pursuing his nemesis, the great white whale Moby Dick, who took his leg. And he pursues him all the way from the Atlantic, around the tip of Africa, and into the Indian Ocean. He pursues the way around both sides of the earth. It's an abstract goal, nothing concrete or definite. He calls Moby the emperor, sees him as the embodiment of evil. Ahab's got a wife and child back in Nantucket that he reminisces about now and again. You can anticipate what will happen. The ship's crew is made up of men of different races, and any one of them who sights the whale will be given the reward of a gold coin. A lot of zodiac symbols, religious allegory, stereotypes. Ahab encounters other waiting vessels, presses the captains for details about Moby. Have they seen him? There's a crazy prophet, Gabriel, on one of the vessels, and he predicts Ahab's doom. Says Moby is the incarnate of a shaker god, and that any dealings with him will lead to disaster. He says that to Captain Ahab. Another ship's captain, Captain Boomer, he lost an arm to Moby, but he tolerates that and he's happy to have survived. He can't accept Ahab's lust for vengeance. This book tells how different men react in different ways to the same experience. A lot of Old Testament biblical allegory. Gabriel, Rachel, Jeroboam, Bildah, Elijah, pagan names as well. Tashtego, Flask, Dagu, Fleece, Starbuck, Stub. Martha's Vineyard, the pagans are idol worshippers. Some worship little wax figures, some wooden figures, some worship fire. The Pequod is the name of an Indian tribe. Moby Dick is a seafaring tale. One of the men, the narrator, says, call me Ishmael. Somebody asks him where he's from. He says, it's not down on any map. True places never are. Stubb gives no significance to anything says everything is predestined. Ishmael's been on a sailing ship his entire life, calls the sailing ships he has Harvard and Yale. He keeps his distance from people. A typhoon hits the Pequod. Captain Ahab thinks it's a good omen. Stubbuck thinks it's a bad omen, considers killing Ahab. As soon as the storm ends, a crew member falls from the ship's mast and drowns, foreshadowing what's to come. A Quaker pacifist priest who is actually a bloodthirsty businessman, tells Flask, some men who receive injuries are led to God, others are led to bitterness. Everything is mixed in, all the myths, the Judeo-Christian Bible, Hindu myths, British legends, St. George, Perseus, Hercules, they're all whalers, Greek mythology, the gory business of cutting up a whale, lots of facts in this book, geographical knowledge, Whale oil, good for coronation of royalty. 
noble families in the whaling industry. Whale oil is used to anoint the kings. History of the whale, phrenology, classical philosophy, pseudo-scientific theories, justification for discrimination, everything thrown in, and none of it hardly rational. Highbrow, lowbrow, chasing illusion, chasing death. The great white whale, white as a polar bear, white as a white man, the emperor, the nemesis, the embodiment of evil. And by what, by the way, what a book. Pick it up, read it sometime, and you want to after listening to Dylan talk about it. And then in this part of the speech, Dylan closed things out and tied everything together. So what does it all mean? Myself and a lot of other songwriters have been influenced by these very same themes. And they can mean a lot of different things. If a song moves you, that's all that's important. I don't have to know what a song means. I've written all kinds of things into my songs, and I'm not going to worry about it, what it all means. When Melville put all his Old Testament biblical references, scientific theories, Protestant doctrines, and all that knowledge of the sea and sailing ships and whales into one story, I don't think he would have worried about it either, what it all means. John Donne as well, the poet-priest who lived in the time of Shakespeare, that wrote these words, the cestos and abidos of her breasts, not of two lovers, but two loves, the nests. I don't know what it means either, but it sounds good, and you want your songs to sound good. When Odysseus in the Odyssey visits the famed warrior Achilles in the underworld, Achilles who traded a long life full of peace and contentment for a short one full of honor and glory, tells Odysseus there was all a mistake. I just died, that's all. There was no honor, no immortality, and that if he could, he would choose to go back and be a lowly slave to a tenant farmer on earth rather than be what he is, a king in the land of the dead. That whatever his struggles of life were, They were preferable to being here in this dead place. And that's what songs are too. Our songs are alive in the land of the living. But songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record, or however people are listening to songs these days. I return once again to Homer, who says, Sing in me, O muse, and through me tell the story. And luckily for all of us, Dylan came of age at a time that kids got to read these classics. We all did. Their universality is sorely missing, as literature has devolved into identity, politics, grievance, and self-help. What Dylan's work would have been like without these influences, we'll never know. And to all of you Dylan doubters, this speech might just have you rethinking your position. And so, we end this segment with a suggestion. Get out the lyrics to some of Dylan's great songs, and even some of his lesser-known songs, and sing them. Sing them, and you will know them. Sing them, and you will come to love them. Sing them and you will somehow feel yourself connected to the great literature, the great stories of the ages. This is Our American Stories. Bob Dylan, the man, the artist, 
I think summarized as beautifully as I've ever heard anyone summarize the meaning of literature. More after these messages. Say beware, doll, you're bound to fall You thought they were all I'm kidding you You used to laugh about Everybody that was hanging out Now you don't talk so loud Now you don't seem so proud about having to be scrounging your next meal. How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home? Like a complete unknown. Like a rock. I believe that you are a mother who is pretty desperate. Right? Just do me a favor. Step yourself outside. You're irritating me. I want you to speak slowly, speak clearly, so that I can understand you. This is Lee Habib. I'm speaking slowly. Because whatever Judge Judy tells anyone to do, they do. Hello! (laughs) That's right. And we love talking about everything here on the show. And two of our favorite TV shows, because they're two of yours, are Judge Judy and Shark Tank. And they lend themselves perfectly to stories. What is a better story than those cases that come up? You've always got two stories, and one of them is telling the truth, and one of them is probably not. Or they're both lying, or they're both telling the truth. Right. Right. And, of course, we have Shark Tank. Well, today we're going to feature Judge Judy and our favorite case of the week. And this one is the case of the eBay scammer. Let's take a listen. Karen Ann Davenport and her daughter Shannon are suing Kelly Filkins for scamming them on eBay. The plaintiffs claim they paid Kelly for two cell phones. And in return, she sent them two pictures of cell phones. All rise. Outrageous. (laughs) As Judge Judy takes a seat, she has a huge grin on her face. She first speaks with the mother-daughter plaintiffs. Ms. Davenport, this is your daughter? Yes. According to your complaint, you and your daughter won an auction on eBay. Two. Two. Two auctions. Two auctions. And the auctions were being run by the defendant and her husband. You claim that they defrauded you. You won the auctions, you sent them the money, and you didn't get what you were supposed to get. And when you complained about it, Ms. Filkins? Yes posted defamatory comments about you on your eBay website. Correct. And you want to be compensated for both. Correct. Ms. Filkins has an ad, I assume. Yes. The ad that she posted on eBay. Yes. 
Mrs. Davenport, what did you purchase at this auction? We purchased two i580 cell phones. For how much? One was 201.50 and one was 255.56. And do you have the ad that you? I've got both. Responded to? Yes, it's two different. I don't do that electronic stuff. I go to a store. There's shop. two different auctions. <laughs> I go to the store to shop. Judge Judy gets a copy of the defendant Kelly Filkins eBay ad. Okay, so it describes the item, etc. Headset jack, yes. Phone design clamshell. Weight, 4.90 ounces. This is all in your ad? Yes. Okay, so you won and you sent her money? Correct. And what did you get in return? I got the envelope and I got um, these two sheets of paper. Can I see it, please? Sent her your money and you... This envelope came Correct. along with these pictures of the cell phones. That's exactly what was in there. Okay. So you called her and said, where are my phones? And she said... Actually, I've never talked to her. I talked to her husband. And her husband told me that uh, I paid for what I got. Thank you for the shopping spree. I asked him for my money back. And he said, no, I've already spent the money on merchandise I wanted to get. And he laughed and told me to take him to court. So I hung up the phone, and I have not talked to them since. Where's your husband? He's at home with our children. He couldn't come. Why couldn't he come? Because we couldn't find a babysitter. So he had to Why didn't you stay home? Because I would rather come than him. The eBay auction is in my name. Oh, good. So you are responsible for this? Yes. Explain it. Uh, it states very clearly in the auction that this is for a photo only. I sent her the photo. Show me where it says that. Show me where it says that. Right here. Show me. Show me. The defendant, Kelly Filkin, scans through the edge she put on eBay. The paper that she just handed you that I sent her, that was part of the... Listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully. I want you to... Listen. Listen to me carefully. She answered an auction on eBay for two telephones. That's what she says. She was advised that she was the successful bidder, according to her, for the two telephones that you were selling, because it's in your name. She sent you $467.75. And you sent her two photographs of the cell phones. And you say that that's what she paid for, two photographs of the cell phones. Are we understanding each other? Yes. You're an idiot <laughs> and a scammer. And the reason your husband is not here, what's your first name? Kelly. Kelly, the reason your husband is not here is because he sent you here to the lion's den because he was a coward. That's why he sent you. That's not true. Oh, that's why he sent you. You are married to, listen to me, own. Kelly, you are married to a coward and a scamming coward. And if you came here to defend that position to me, you're going to be unsuccessful because you are a thief. How is because, my listen to me, a listen, coward? Listen to me. You he are had a thief. nothing to do with the auction. Listen to me. You're a thief because your husband said to her, thank you for the shopping spree. My husband spree. never said that to her. Absolutely did. No, he didn't. Absolutely not. did. Because I believe that if you are married to this man, and the two of you not only unfortunately married to each other, two scammers, but created children together, that's unfortunate for the children. You're a thief. Outrageous. Judge Judy is just getting warmed up. You are outrageous, madam. Why don't you get a job? Look at me. Why don't you get it a job? Right look here. Look at me. This is for look a photo at, look, only. Answer my question. Why don't you get a job? I don't need a to job? get a job. 
You don't need to get no, a job? No, I don't. My husband works. I don't need to get a job. What kind of job? What kind of work does your husband do? He's a drywaller. A drywaller? Mm -hmm. Does he work for himself or for a company? He works for himself. Really? When was the last time your family filed tax returns? Last year. Really? What did he earn when he filed his tax returns? I'm not sure. You're not sure? You signed them. Yeah, doesn't mean you I read them. Really? But you read that ad very carefully. Uh-huh, because when I, you I wrote the ad. Listen to me. You read that ad and wrote it very carefully in anticipation of scamming somebody out of $467. You're an outrageous person. And your husband is an outrageous person to permit it. Outrageous. So what I've said to you before was, you need a job. Because you have to get a job so that you can make money legitimately, not scam people out of their hard-earned money. Don't answer me. What I don't understand is somebody with the unenviable position of being in your position right there today, why you would risk humiliating yourself in front of 10 million people is something that is totally beyond me. You are an outrageous person. Now I want to know what she posted on the website after you harassed her for your money back. Let's find out what feedback the defendant left on the plaintiff's eBay account. Uh, she left feedback saying that I was a scam artist, that I was from Nigeria. I sent her fake money orders. That's why I didn't get what I sent for. She not only left it on her username, she left it on my daughter's username, my username. Can I see it? I never said. Don't speak until I speak to you. She got what she paid Don't for. Don't speak until I speak to you. How many children do you have, Miss Pilkins? Three. How old are they? Five, three, and two. You have an active case with Child Protective Services? No. You have a case that has been investigated by Child Protective Services? No. You might. For what? I didn't harm my children. I didn't put my children oh, in any danger. Something. Let me tell you something. Bringing this kind of activity into your home. What I'm kind risking, of activity? I'm she risk can't read. It's listen. not my fault she can't read. No, listen to me, madam. I read your ad. Uh-huh. Listen to me. I, shh, listen to me. No. I'm older, smarter. If you live to be 120, you're not going to be as smart as I am in one finger. Do you understand? I understand, but Good. it's not true. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, oh. true. You wait. You may way more, but you're not going to be smarter than I am in one That's finger. That's your opinion. <laughs> Judge Judy puts a lid on this thing. Now, you say in your ad, in describing it, it weighs 4.90 ounces. This does not weigh 4.90 ounces. That's what you sent to her. So I'm telling you immediately that you thought you were smart when you said you're bidding on what you see in the picture which you circled in the picture, this does not meet the description of what she purchased, which was, don't put your hand down, 4.90 ounces. So when I said to you that if you live until you're 150, you're not going to be as smart as I am in one finger, I want you to trust me on this because I, being in your position, would never humiliate myself in front of 10 million people. Never! And the IRS, I'm certain, I'm certain I'm going to be very interested to see the results of your eBay business. And did you notify eBay that they should be stricken off eBay? They, they finally just did uh, two days ago. They've been, I've turned Delayed. them over to the uh, Attorney General. Too. Delayed. Very good. You turned it over to the Attorney General. What you should have turned it over to is the local police department. I they tried, live in a different state. I tried to do that. They were in a different state, so I contacted our local police department, which they're investigating it now. But the Attorney General's got three other cases against them. She doesn't like to work. She likes to make babies. 
Well, there was eight other people at this auction she scanned. She likes to make babies. She thinks that that's there is other people. She that, thinks that you have to be smart to make babies. Don't speak to me until I speak to you. Don't speak to me until I speak to you. You have to find something else to do with your time constructively other than make children who are going to grow up with no moral compass like their mother. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $5,000. That's all. Thank you. And there you have it. And it's why we all love Judge Judy. And it is so politically incorrect. When you hear, I ask questions, you answer them. Unless I'm looking at you for an answer, do not speak. We understand each other. Understood. This is Lee Habib. This is This is our American Stories. Judge Judy at her best. That's baloney. It doesn't make sense. Yes! You can't dance fast enough for me. Do you understand? Yes. No, 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 no. Yes!